an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio. Heard with Dave Ross, Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, meet the designer of the Evergreen State's enduring Mount Rainier license plate. And she's like, hi, Eric, uh, do you remember entering this contest? So I'm kind of like, yeah. And she said, you won. And then, from the archives, remembering the late broadcaster Bill Brubaker. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, which is his quick look at the stories behind the names of local places and things. And this week, it's the Mountain Loop Highway, which has been a popular recreation area since the 1930s. And now the Forest Service is about to make some big improvements. Good morning, Felix. Morning, Dave. Yeah, Mountain Loop Highway is a name for a series of roads in Snohomish County that follow the South Fork and North Fork of the Stillaguamish River and part of the Sauk River. It all goes through the Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest. And the Forest Service just announced a new initiative to address some long-term needs for improving recreation areas along the highway and making it more accessible. Now, that name Mountain Loop Highway, it sounds to me like something from the 1950s, and that is when it became prominent. But the earliest reference using that name was actually 1931. And the southern portion of the road goes east from Lake Stevens through places like Granite Falls, Robe, Silverton, Verlot. And no, it's not pronounced Verlo, um, and up to the Big Four Ice Caves. And the route follows much of an old railroad that was first completed in 1893. It went from Everett all the way to the gold and silver mining ghost town of Monte Cristo, which in pictures from the 1940s looks like something out of Scooby-Doo. Now, the mining was pretty much done by 1920, and so the railroad shut down in 1933. And then the highway came about from the efforts of the Seattle and Everett Chambers of Commerce, lobbying for recreation and mining interests, and it was dedicated in, in October 1942. Now, currently, east of Big Four, the road is still closed for the season. It's probably snowing up there right now. And Matt Phelps of Snohomish County told me it'll probably open up around the end of the month. And when it does, you can continue over Barlow Pass and down into Darrington and then come west on State Route 530 all the way to Arlington. That's the loop part of the drive. And most of the route is paved, but there's a 13-mile stretch beyond Barlow Pass that's not, but it is passable by most cars. The whole route's about 104 miles. And now the Mountain Loop's a very popular place, and it's getting a little worn down. Uh, parking can be tough at places like the very popular Lake 22 Trailhead. Mm-hmm. And so the big news this week is that the National Forest Foundation, that's the nonprofit fundraising partner of the Forest Service, they've chosen the Mountain Loop Highway for their Treasured Landscapes program. Now, the Forest Service has identified about $14 million worth of improvements, and the National Forest Foundation is aiming to raise about $2.5 million of that and to leverage a lot more private and public support and volunteer horsepower, too. Now, it's a four-year project at the minimum, but it will address some big long-term stuff. But the people will start seeing changes later this year, including uh, a new bridge, reopening a bridge across the river at Big Four uh, for the hiking trail there, uh, new and improved restrooms in several places, and improvements to many trails. And really, that's just the start. Um, there's talk about expanding parking areas and just uh, making that area more durable for its continued use. It's only going to grow in usage, probably. Uh, the Forest Service told me the designation also makes the Mountain Loop more competitive for other federal funding sources. And the National Forest Foundation is counting on partners and volunteers to donate money, time, and other resources. And we'll have a link with more information all about that at My Northwest. I liked Lake 22 uh, years ago. And Mount Monte Cristo is still well, it was there when we visited it. I hope it's still there. It's uh, 
not in good shape. <laughs> yeah, there, there is a, a long time. Yeah, there's an old road that goes up. That you can only hike up it now. And there are a few buildings left, and there's some old signs and stuff. But it's nothing like the the bustling mining community it was back in the 1890s. I mean, it's sort of it's crazy. It's like something literally out of out of an old West movie. It is. All of Felix's features at MinersWest.com. Thanks, Felix. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Dave. Washington State apples, the fruit that's good for you. I've never heard that before. <laughs> it was a history-making time 35 years ago this month when state officials unveiled the design of an all-new license plate in advance of the Washington State Centennial Celebration. Our resident historian Felix Spinell tracked down the high school senior whose enduring design beat out nearly 1,400 other artists. Felix is brought to us by the Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Morning, Dave. Yeah, it was back in May 1986. Eric Booth was a student at Ferndale High School in Whatcom County. One afternoon, the phone rang. His mom hollered for him, and he came and took the cordless handset from her and placed it to his ear. The caller was Teresa Aragon, head of the Washington State Department of Licensing. And she's like, hi, Eric. Uh, do you remember entering this contest? So I'm kind of like, yeah. And she said, you won. And I immediately was just like, flying around the house she was talking to me asking me questions and i was like you've got to be kidding me i literally my my face went kind of pins and needles uh the adrenaline was pumping and i seriously i I don't all i remember from that conversation was something like uh you won we want to bring you down to olympia blah 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 state patrol car will come and get you where's your family so the centennial was in 1989 it's 100 years since washington became a state The contest to design the license plate was held a few years before that, in 1986. And now the origins of the contest and the idea of making a special plate trace back a bit before that to former Secretary of State Ralph Monroe and a visit he made to his elderly father on Bainbridge Island. And he went out in the garage and he pulled out a 1939 license plate from the state of Washington. And he said, you should have a license plate. This was the 1939 license plate for the Golden Jubilee. And so we got this license plate idea, and I started to promote it, and others talked about it. We thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's have a license plate. So that was the one time that Washington had had a special plate before for the 50th anniversary of statehood mm-hmm. back in 1939. So there's a direct link between 1939 and 1989, which I think is pretty cool. Now, Eric Booth had always drawn cars and band logos, and he was in the early stages of choosing a career in graphic design when his art teacher encouraged him to enter the contest, which he says he did on the last possible day. And the plate design he submitted, which we'll talk about in a minute, had a silhouette of Mount Rainier and the words Centennial Celebration. After that phone call, it all happened pretty fast. The official unveiling was in late May at the state capitol. Late former Governor Booth Gardner was there, and so was Secretary of State Ralph Monroe, who was in charge of the whole Centennial Celebration. Eric was there with his mom and dad. They had, in fact, been driven from Ferndale to Olympia by the state patrol. They gave him a plaque with a copy of the plate, and the media coverage was intense, as you could imagine, which meant that young, young Eric soon learned that his design was not exactly universally admired. And I remember the headline was, new license plate, you love or you hate. <laughs> and of course, the people who loved it were the housewives and the people with blue or red fans, minivans who thought, you know, I love it. It's going to match my, my car. And then we had, you know, people who were professional graphic designers who were kind of like, they, they hated it. They thought it was amateurish. It could look contrived. Of course, I remember all of this now like it was yesterday. It's just kind of stuck with me my entire career. 
You know, and despite the critics, winning the contest did influence his career. Uh, he's now principal interaction designer with Pitney Bowes in Connecticut, and the Centennial Plate was popular with the public, too. It was available from 1987 to 1990. And what made the winning design stand out is that it's very colorful. It's not the green that you might have been expected for a Washington plate. It's red and blue. And, of course, it also has that Mount Rainier silhouette. And that silhouette and those colors were kept after the centennial celebration was over, which is a little unusual. So Eric's design is currently visible on more than 7.5 million plates here in 2021. Wow. Now, Eric Booth can't remember exactly how he was inspired to go with Mount Rainier, but he remembers it, how he drew it so accurately. My dad was working in Tacoma at the time, and I literally was looking out the window and just kind of traced it and so a couple of my original designs i was doing the shading and doing all that stuff and i was like nobody's gonna be able to see the shading they're not even gonna be able to print the shading so i just came up with a thing where i could block it out you know but i was literally i was visiting him at his office down there and it was it's so it, if you're thinking about it it's the tacoma view of the mountain one more reason for tacoma to feel superior to seattle yes. um so 35 years later eric says family and friends still remember his role in designing the plate and it comes up in those icebreaker games, you know, something you, didn't, you don't know about me kinds of things you do, and then you start new jobs and that sort of stuff. Yeah. He said that he sees the plates occasionally near where he lives now in Connecticut. But one particular place where a Washington plate is on display made a big impression. I had a friend, actually, who was, like, visiting the Smithsonian. This one kind of blew me away. And they've got the preamble, um, We the People, done in kind of customized license plates. And my license plate design is there. And that one kind of is like, of all of the places where people have kind of said, hey, Eric, I saw your plate, that was the one that kind of threw me back the most. I was like, man, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think they picked the right plate and the right guy. Um, he's humble, but it's clear he's still really, still really jazzed by the honor of having his design selected. Probably every time I look at a license plate, I'm probably thinking about it in the back of my head. Do I, do I dwell on it? Every time I do think about it, though, I think about how lucky I am. That's, you know. If it had just come and gone in a few years and people would be like, you know, what, no big deal. I, to me, I think the thing that stands out the most is really just the length of time. Yeah, that is pretty incredible. And the state wasn't able to tell me just how many of Eric's plates in total have been made over the past 34 years. I mean, if there's seven and a half million out there right now, it's got to be, I don't know, 20, 30 million. I mean, some tens of millions of these plates are out there. And what artist can point to point to that a piece of artwork and say, you know, this many millions are out there in metal. Now, I had to ask him if you ever got to see the factory in Walla Walla where the plates are made by Department of Corrections inmates. No, no, I didn't get to see it. But, you know, my dad, being the dad he is, I inherited his dad jokes. He used to always say, you know, my son designed the plate. He's not making them. <laughs> <laughs> And I talked to Eric's parents, uh, Roger and Connie, and they're just as proud as you expect. Um, and Eric, he still has his copy of the original Centennial plate that he ordered for himself, a personalized plate that says, My Design, on it. And we'll have a gallery up later at My Northwest with all kinds of great pictures of the images of the plates that he's collected, plates he's been inspired by. And it is really unusual because other states have had special plates for their Centennials or other kinds of special occasions. But the fact the core design remains... What is it, 34 years later, 35 yeah. years after it was like, that's that's really bizarre. Well, I mean, if you're going to choose an icon, you can't do better than Mount Rainier, right? Yeah, they, they really did a nice job, and the, the contest was a real success. They picked the right plate and the right guy. Right. Felix Bedell, all his features are available at MyNorthwest.com. And uh, if you're new to town and uh, don't know what Mount Rainier looks like, it's out this morning. <laughs> by the way. You can just look to the southeast. And you'll see the license plate. <laughs> I always get it mixed up with Mount Pilchuck. It's yes, easy to do. Easy to do. Felix Bennell. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave.
because this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, broadcaster Bill Brubaker passed away in May 2021. We remember the time he used radio to help save the soul of Roseburg, Oregon. Go back 58 years. 58 years ago, 350 miles away, August of 1959, Roseburg, Oregon. Historian Felix Spinell joins us, brought to you by the King County Library System. What happened in August of 1959? Yeah, well, Roseburg's on I-5. It's about 70 miles south of Eugene. There was a truck from the Pacific Powder Company of Tonino. It parked right in downtown with about six tons of explosives aboard. And just through nothing other than bad luck, a fire broke out right next to the truck in a hardware store. And it blew up, leveled about 13 blocks of the city, killed 14 people, big fire. But the story I have today is about a remarkable response of three college kids who were in Roseburg for the summer running a little daytimer AM radio station. It's only on the air from sunrise to sunset Mm -hmm. by FCC regulations. They're all three students at Washington State College in Pullman. And they were spending the summer there because the staff at KRXL had pretty much quit. And they got a call from a friend of theirs, come on down and work for the summer. They played records, local newscasts, and read local commercials. One of them was Bill Brubaker, who was 20 years old at the time. Bill went on to be a KOMO-TV anchor. He used to work with him. Yeah, he, yeah. He came he over worked, to Cairo. Then. Yeah, and um, then he was a Snohomish yeah. County councilman, just a, a legend yeah. in local broadcasting. But that was all in the future. So um, the explosion hit about 1.15 in the morning. It blew the windows out of the house where Bill Brubaker and these two other kids, Don Corden and Larry White, where they were staying. As soon as Brubaker and his three friends got clear of the rubble, they headed into town to find out what had happened. About two blocks from our house is a big, huge flour mill. As we reached the corner, the flour mill exploded, the, the upper part of it. It went to pieces, and we were about, oh, maybe 200 yards from the flour mill when it blew up. So we had to change direction fast, and so we went uptown. So by going uptown, they figured out that the other two radio stations in town had been destroyed in the blast, right? And that's when these, uh, these gutsy kids decided they had to get on out to the KRXL studio and transmitter site on the edge of town and get on the air. We didn't know until the next day what exactly happened. But we, you know, I guess it was just a, a collective aha moment that said, wait a minute, we've got to help our, our audience and let them know what we know. And give, uh, the idea was that we needed, we felt that we needed to provide for them a place to go. And that being their radio station, the radio, turn it on. So it's pretty cool. Brubaker, Corden, and White threw the daytimer rules out the window. They went on the air, you know, and just ran KRXL around the clock for the next several days. Really? FCC never complained, right? Again, this is, yeah. they were sort of functioning as social media before social media had right. been considered by anybody. Right. They got plenty of positive feedback. People were calling in with requests and messages to send and, you know, via telephone. And the three of them worked in shifts, and the station became a kind of virtual, like a crossroads, a cracker barrel, and a bulletin board for sharing information about the blast the recovery and the rebuilding efforts. Now, I also spoke with Karen Bratton. She's the collections manager and research librarian at the Douglas County Museum in Roseburg. I asked her if the blast had any long-lasting effect on the town, and she cited a more recent tragedy out at Umpqua Community College. Yes, it was affected by the explosion, and I think the people of Roseburg, they usually all pull together as a community. I mean, just a couple of years ago, we had that horrible shooting out at UCC, and so, um, yes, the community of Roseburg, they really pull together whenever there's a, a tragedy. It seems like that always brings out the best in people. 
But it really blows me away what Brubaker and his buddies figured out, too. Again, these are just kids. Brubaker's mm-hmm. 21. The other guys are maybe 20 Well, we all started radio as kids. Right? I, yeah, and we started listening. And, and, you know, he was the lifetime radio, listened to radio all his life and kind of knew what radio could do in an yeah. emergency like this. But no one told him to do this. No supervisor said, hey, you three do this. They did it on their own. And so when he went back to college that summer he, or that fall, he saw this as just an incredible opportunity. I think that was probably the uppermost thing in my my mind as I returned to school, that I have been given this wonderful opportunity, as tragic as it was, to do everything in broadcasting that I would desire to do. You know, you're 20 years old, and wow, you know, there's guys twice my age that never get an opportunity like that. And how many news careers were started because somebody happened to be there at a time of crisis? And, and understood the thrill of covering something like that, as tragic as it might be. Yeah, and then jumped in the car. And then a year later, he got a real job at KXLY in Spokane, where they uh, renamed him Bashful Billy Brubaker. He had to play uh, rock and roll records on the Spokane airwaves. So, really? Great. Yeah, yeah. He, he, didn't he never mentions much. those years. He didn't care much for being Bashful <laughs> Billy Brubaker. He says he had no idea why they called him that. It was just one of those goofy things where you had to have an alliterative nickname. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Hi, folks. This is Gene Autry and his Hollywood friends wishing K-I-R-O all the success in the world. So long.